And we're back. And for those of you who subscribe to our bonus episode, it's like we never left, right? Right. And it's also like we never left to us because we really did never leave. No. (laughs) (laughs) We just rolled right into this episode. So we're going to pick up where we left off in part one of our discussion of spirit entities. So let's jump right in. Mysteriously Eclectic Podcast is a proud affiliate of Philips 1-800-Florals. If you're anything like me, whenever I find myself needing to send flowers, it's always at a moment's notice, and it's hard to know who will deliver to the area and if the flowers will even look nice when they get there. Philips 1-800-Florals is a one-stop shop to send flowers to anyone online, both here in the U.S. and internationally. So if you're looking to send flowers to someone special... Check out the link in our show notes to learn more. So when we last left, Erin filled us in on the history of mediumship in the United States. And we talked a little bit about like the human element of people seeking out ways to interact with the spirits. And in these interactions, we talked about that we're kind of assuming that these are ghosts, right? Like people that once lived right, for the most part, or people that are faking it, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. probably a mix of both. And then we dove into the story of Joe Fisher and his spirit guide, Philippa, who was channeled through Aviva, who was an Australian woman who was suffering from leukemia. And she'd undergo these hypnotic healing sessions and entities would just start speaking through her. And she would wake up not remembering any of this, but these channeled spirits would claim to be people who had once lived, but... Again, when Joe studied the lives of these people, none of the details checked out. Um, These people didn't seem to be who they claimed to have been. Yet the facts that they rattled off about, you know, what they might have been doing when they were alive. For example, we talked about Ernest and his vast knowledge of World War II history. That stuff checked off. But the details of their lives, the things that people should just know, those details didn't check out. So we ended that story kind of thinking, were these people at all or some other type of entity, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of brings us to where we are right now. And again, if you didn't listen to episode one of this series, you probably should because this isn't going to make any sense to you, right? Did we, did you mention how much longer Aviva lived? Oh, no, actually. I don't think he talked about it in the book. Um, I mean, it did seem like there was some therapeutic healing Mm -hmm. from these sessions. She really was benefiting from it. So, and I'm glad that you asked that because whatever was happening, she was benefiting from it. They were doing something. It did seem like these spirits. So I don't know the situation in that story really reminds me almost of like a parasitic type of situation, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like she was their host and it was important that they keep her alive so that they can continue to come through. Yeah. So, okay. So this next story also takes place in the eighties. That last story took place in the eighties as well. 
So a guy named Ken, who's actually the author of this book, he lives in the English countryside in the UK in a cottage, and it's a rural area in Wales. It's late fall in 1984. Rural, like the rural juror? Yes, the rural juror. <laughs> Ken is a teacher at a primary school, and he's renovating his cottage. And this cottage is super old. And I know here in the United States, like when we say things are old, we're saying like maybe it's like 100 years old. Yeah. This is a 700-year-old cottage. Dang. Yes. So it is old. So it's him and his girlfriend, Deb, and they have a friend staying with him. Her name is Nick. And as this construction is underway, they start to notice weird, like, poltergeist activity taking place in the house. So kind of like your run-of-the-mill, just weird noises, things that go bump in the night, like that type stuff. The first real undeniable thing that they notice is footprints on the fresh paint on a wall. And there's six-toed footprints that are going like up a wall at an angle. And they notice that it doesn't, they don't know how it could have happened. They don't know how anyone could have gotten up there. And they paint over them and they come back again. And so that's the first thing that they can't really deny that they're seeing. You know, you can kind of dispel mm -hmm. noises or whatever, but footprints in the paint on the wall are pretty much like in your face, you know? My friend and I did that to his brother once. Did you? So we found a little known fact, um, Tide, like the detergent, really? will glow in a black light. And oh. his younger brother, I mean, not too much younger, yeah. we were being terrible, was had a black light in his room mm -hmm. and we read about that so then we took and we made handprints and footprints going up the wall to the ceiling oh my god inside so when he went to bed and turned all his lights out and turned his black light on that's hilarious he'd be like oh, oh my, my gosh, gosh. <laughs> that's hilarious so they also start to notice other things like they'll have you know just a pile of like fancy feasts which is something that would happen in this house. <laughs> and they'll wake up in the morning and the cat food tins will be like arranged in a pyramid or soda bottles, like like the two liter soda bottles will be mm -hmm. like precariously stacked into a tower. And this is all happening overnight. They never really hear like a ruckus and it's all happening in the kitchen. So all this activity seems to be centered in the kitchen for some reason. And it's really creeping everybody out, but it's sort of your run-of-the-mill, like, poltergeist haunted house stuff. So quick pause. This actually, um, my husband and I went on a ghost tour uh -huh. um, in Door County. Mm -hmm. And there's a lighthouse up there that stuff like this, exactly what you're saying, happens yeah. there. And that if they left their kitchen messy, they would wake up and things would be, like, put away. Yeah. Which, this please. <laughs> yeah. This type of stuff happened in, I believe, Skinwalker Ranch in one of the homesteads. Mm -hmm. um, they actually noticed that there were like locks on the doors of the like cabinets because apparently things would come out, they would open. And I actually experienced this personally one time. Oh, geez. Um, right before we moved out of our house, I was looking for something in our unfinished part of our basement and we lived in an older home. Um, I mean, not, not this old. I mean, the house was built in like the fifties. So, I mean, we're talking like it was like a 50 year old house mm -hmm. and they had taken the original kitchen 
and they put it downstairs. So in the unfinished part of our biz of our basement, there was like a full set of like cabinetry. There was even like an old stove and my dad used it kind of as like a workshop and we were moving and I went downstairs and I was looking for something. And this area of the house always kind of creeped me out. I was looking and I couldn't find it. And so I did the normal thing where I went back upstairs and I'm like, mom, I can't find blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I told you it's in this drawer. Just go back down. It's down there. I'm sure it's down there. Mm. I go down there and everything's open. Aww. All of the cabinet doors are open. All the drawers are open. You don't like that. And I just nope my way out of there. I shut the door and I went, nope, not going back in there again. And I never did. I never did. There was so much creepy stuff that happened in that house that that was just kind of like the last straw. And I'm like, nope, 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 nope. And I've heard of stuff like that happening a lot. Like that yeah. is not a completely unique story. But yeah, so, you know, creepy stuff like that, but definitely not unheard of. Mm -hmm. So around the same time, Nick, who was the friend that was staying with them, she needed a computer for some type of project that she was working on. From my understanding, she was writing like skits, like a play or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe it was like a comedy routine. I don't really know. But she was doing some type of creative stuff. She needed um, to write it on something. And Ken was like, it might be helpful if you use a word processor. So remember, this is the early 80s. Yeah. So Ken brings home a computer. And he had like a pool of computers at his school. So I'm picturing like a computer lab. And this was a BBC microcomputer, and it's a very early home computer. These were released in 1981 in the UK. They were super simple. They had no fixed internal hard drive. They only had RAM or temporary memory that would be lost when you turned it off. The computer was not connected to the internet, and there was no way to even connect it to the internet, even if it had been available where they were. Furthermore, modems were not something that a British, like, countryside home would have yeah. access to. So, Erin, did you ever work on a computer or anything like this? Like, like one this yeah. old? No, not this old. Okay. I mean, we, we had a computer in, in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. We had a Macintosh Classic, I remember. Mm -hmm. so this would have been the early 90s. And then... I do remember that my dad had a, so that would have been slightly more advanced than this because it actually had like windows as an operating system. Mm -hmm. But I do remember that we had, well, I guess it would have been windows. It was, it was a Macintosh yeah. classic, but you know what I mean? Like you used a right. mouse and you opened up different things. Um, but we actually had a word processor and it was similar, I think to this, it wasn't like a computer, but it was like a digital typewriter. Mm -hmm. And so when they're explaining this, it's somewhat similar, I think, to okay. what I experienced. And I mean, it was very rudimentary. You could, on this computer that he's talking about, this with mine, you couldn't do it this way. But with what they're talking about, you could save things to floppy disks. Yes, yes. Yep. Um, but that was about it. You couldn't actually save something to the computer. It had to be saved to a floppy disk. And while the floppy disk was in there, you could look at the index and you could see what had been saved. Mm -hmm. So the way that this computer worked was they would use something called Edward 2. And that's word as in like W-O-R-D. That's cute. Yes. <laughs> How clever. 
And this was a type of software, a word processing software that you would get to by typing star Edward enter. So there was no type of windows. So this is all in like DOS. Yes. You would type commands into the computer and get it to do things. Store their work on floppy disks, which we are from the era of floppy disks. Mm -hmm. I remember it was usually one of your school supplies was you had to have your floppy disk. And if you forgot your floppy disk at home and it had your work on it, you were screwed. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you don't know what a floppy disk is, it's like this era's version of like a flash drive or something. Yes. Yeah. So all you could really do was create a document, revise a document, or look at the index, and then you'd have to save your work under some type of file name. Come on this journey with me, okay? Okay. Ken, Deb, Nick. True are the nightmares of a person that fears. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks. Pussycat, pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. So Ken is like, wow, Nick, that's horrible. What are you working on? So I'm joking, but obviously Nick didn't write this and they figure out none of them wrote this, or at least that's what they all say. And I mean, in the beginning, they're kind of like, this has to be some type of hoax, but they cannot figure out how this got on the computer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no one that could have obviously gotten in the house and it just doesn't really make sense, but clearly someone had to have put this on the computer. Now, it's important to note that Ken brings the computer back to school and then he'd bring another computer back to his house because they would work on different things. So throughout this entire story, just note that the computers that are at Ken's house, we don't know that it's ever the same computer. It might be different computers. We don't know that it's like he's checking out the same one. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he brings the computer back to his house sometime later because he needs to work on a document. I think he was like in a band or something and he's like (laughs) drafting some type of like contract or something. I don't know. I was always curious to hear what the band sounded like because he'd talk about it a lot. And once again, he leaves and the computer is just sitting in the kitchen and everyone had kind of went and left. And when they come back, there's a message. And this one's different from the first. It's saved under a file name called Reate, so R-E-A-T-E, which Ken realizes is actually create, but without the C. Mm -hmm. And once again, I'm just going to read this one verbatim and bear with me here. (laughs) This has been translated by Ken's friend. So you see, Ken has a friend who's an expert in Old English. And that's sort of what this letter looks like it's been written in. So Peter, his friend, does his best to translate this into something that Ken can read. So I'm going to try to read the version the way that it was written, the way that it came through. I'm going to do my best. In the future, I'm going to just read the translated versions. But I want to give you an idea of how this actually came through. Sure. So bear with me here. I write on behalf of the man what strange words thou speak, 
Although I must confess that I have also been ill-schooled sometimes, methinks altercations are somewhat barful, for they break man a sleeps in mine bed. Though our goodly man, who hath fanciful woman, who dwells in mine home, I hath no want to affray, for only sigh man half-witted antic has ripped a twain mine bound hath, I been wrethed and not. I hath seen man altercations, lastly charge house and though home. Tis a fitting place with lights which the devil maketh, and costly things that only my friend Edmund Gray can afford, or the king himself. Was twas a great crime to hath bribed mine house. L.W. Now, Aaron, you're looking at what I'm reading, and I think you can vouch for me. It's difficult spelling, correct? Yeah. Problematic spelling. It, like, right is W-R-Y-T-E. I mean, it's it's kind of all over the place. <laughs> lights, which the devil maketh. Lights is spelled L-Y-T-E-S. So it's kind of a mess. And for sake of time, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in this story. So essentially, they start communicating with whatever this is that's coming through the computer. They keep receiving messages back and forth like this. And they're always left on the computer while it's unattended. However, sometimes Ken's girlfriend, Deb, can be home when the messages are received, but just not in the same room. And the house will be locked up. I mean, the lights will be on, so like it'll seem like someone's home. So it would be very daring for somebody to like break in. And furthermore, I mean, these are old computers. Like you remember how computers used to be. Yeah. They were noisy. Mm -hmm. And there would be a loud beep when something was saved to the disk. And they never heard any of this. So Ken takes these letters and he brings them to his friend Peter, who again is a linguist. And despite Peter's best efforts, he cannot find any flaws with the language. So if it were to be a hoax, one would expect that there'd be obvious errors, right? So mm -hmm. like, it'd be like if you and I were going to write a letter in ye old English, like we don't know what we're talking about. We're just right. like pretending. But Peter says all of this is 16th century speak. There's nothing newer intermixed in it, but there are older things intermixed. He never slips up. He never adds in anything that shouldn't be there. The only puzzling thing is the punctuation. There's fairly modern punctuation. So there's liberal use of commas, there's periods, there's brackets, there's um, parentheses. And that was not really a thing back in the time period. Even like question marks were not really a function of their language back then. And remember, this is really at the very beginning of written English language. Mm -hmm. So this was very puzzling that the language was like spot on, but the punctuation was different. So if this was a hoaxer, they're an absolute expert in 16th century English. What's even more like strange about this is mm -hmm. that they don't have something to reference. Like exactly. now I could go online and like be pretty convincing, yes. but... If someone, if this was a hoax, yeah. this would be way more difficult yes. back then. This is 1984. 
uh, in the Wales countryside. And furthermore, this person is an expert at breaking and entering because yeah. they're not being caught. So all of this, and I mean, now pretty much anyone can walk up to a computer and know how to use it. That was not the case back then. Right. I mean, you couldn't just like walk up to this and figure out how to use it. So Ken, Deb, and Nick eventually leaves. So mm -hmm. Peter now kind of enters the chat. And remember, he's that linguist guy. They keep corresponding with this entity and they keep speaking with him through the computer. And we learn some things about this man. First of all, we learn his name is Lucas Wayman. We also learn that he's living in the same space only in the 16th century. So in one message, he dates it 1521. And we also learn that Lucas knows things about the house and the area that they live in. So like landmarks, he talks about Henry VIII. He speaks about the red footings of his house. Now, what's interesting is during the cottage renovation, they actually do unearth red sandstone footings, which is something that nobody knew existed. It was buried under a bunch of like add on parts to the house. So he's able to corroborate this, you know, that something, something about this house that nobody knew. So we come to understand that Lucas is an actual person but living in the past. And they don't understand how this is working, mm -hmm. but they're able to really truly correspond with him. So they're having like an actual conversation with this person from 1521. They're able to leave him messages and he's able to respond to them. Oh, and they're actually able to get to, to, to get to know him. And what's interesting is they're kind of both trying to trip each other up. They both think that it's some type of hoax. And they're looking for ways to kind of fool the other into giving themselves up. So I'll spare you some of the details, but what they're kind of trying to do is like, for example, Lucas will give a detail about his life, but it's not quite right. Or he talks about where he went fishing in a creek, but Ken says to himself, well, that creek is mostly dry. Like, it's weird that you'd go fishing there. Later on, Lucas is like, haha, if this is, you know, if you are actually a person, as you say, then why did you not correct me on this? And why did you not correct me on that? So they start to understand that while they are trying to kind of test this Lucas character and they're trying to research him and look into the things that he's saying he is also doing the same thing to them but back in the 15th or the 16th century hmm. so eventually again i'm kind of skipping through a lot of correspondence here because i'm not going to read you guys ye old english you know yeah <laughs> it's just not good podcast fodder <laughs> but they eventually gain his trust and they actually sort of have this weird like relationship where they're writing back and forth through this computer and they're like pen pals from the past. So at one point, for example, Ken is talking about his horseless carriage, you know, so like his car that he's driving around. And what's interesting is he leaves a picture of a Jaguar car that he's clipped from a magazine and he just leaves it next to the computer. I, he's kind of like, I don't, I don't know. Let's see if this works. So he leaves it next to the computer. And when he returns, the next time there's a message, the magazine clippings there, but it's singed and it looks oh. aged and it's almost like crumbled. 
And Lucas talks about it. He refers to it in his message. He he asks what type of wood it's been printed on. Because oh. you know how magazine paper is like glossy? He's just so puzzled by it. Like, yeah. how how is it possible? And what's interesting is if you think about it, if someone is faking this, now they're an expert in breaking and entering. They're an expert in 16th century English. And then also chemistry, because somehow they've figured out how to artificially age a photograph overnight. Yeah. So, I mean, all these things are just a, a lot, you know, to hoax. So... We also come to find out that Lucas was given the box of lights, which is what he calls this, by a man named One, like the number one. And that's kind of all we know for now. So we understand that Lucas, however he's doing this on his end, it must look something like a computer. So here <laughs> yeah, is- Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. So here's a man in 1521 with like a computer in his home. Mm -hmm. We also start to understand that it only really works if Lucas is there. And it's kind of a long story. Lucas ends up going to jail (laughs) because they think that he's like a witch or something, of course, you know? Yeah. And so he ends up getting thrown in jail and Ken actually able is able to get him out of jail from the future basically it's it's kind of a clever joke what he ends up saying is he goes okay well since you all think that he's communing with the devil and that i'm the devil know that i'm not the devil but i have the powers of the devil and if you do not let him out of his cell i will you know strike (laughs) upon you and so they let him out of jail so at one point is he like okay Pass this down to your children's, children's, children's. This is the winning lottery number. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, we're 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 getting there because no. things are gonna get weirder. Like okay. this is weird enough. They go crazy after this. Anyway, we found out that the box of lights was given to Lucas by a man named One. So a bunch of things happen. Again, I suggest you pick up this book because I'm skipping over a lot here <laughs> just for sake of time. Now, the poltergeist activity is really continuing to act up here, and it's just progressing. It's getting worse, and it's going from things that were just, like, kind of creepy to things that are, like, holy guacamole, man. Like, there is no way that this could be happening overnight on your own. You know, this is more than stacked up fancy feast tins. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to show you a picture here, Erin, and I want you to describe it to the listeners. So this is a picture from the book, and I don't think I can put this in the show notes for like copyright reasons. Right. But explain what you're seeing here. I'm seeing <clears throat> it's a room with a fireplace, wood beams on the ceiling, but then all the furniture, it looks like all this very ugly patterned furniture. By you know, the it's way. the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Stripe, they're all piled on one side of the room like it looks like chairs and there's a bicycle in there too off to the side yeah so it's all like in a heap in the corner of the room well this happened overnight they woke up in the morning and no noise no nothing just all the furniture is like this so let me show you this other one look at this one oh my gosh is that the kitchen yeah yeah it looks like a what would you say that is maybe a stove yeah 
it's turned on its side, like kind of on the floor against the wall. Like, like diagonally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these poltergeist activities have gone from weird to dangerous, really. Yeah. And I mean, you would be damaging your things if this was just a hoax and you're doing this to yourself. Hmm. So while this is happening, they're trying to track down Lucas Wyman in the historical records based on the details that he provided, which much like our last story, they're having a hard time. The schools he claimed he went to, the places he lived, nothing is matching the historical record, which I guess at this point isn't much of a surprise. Ken also brings in SPRI, which is the Society for Psychical Research. And I, I'll refer to them as SPRI because Society for Psychical Research is kind of a mouthful. So this is a nonprofit organization in the UK whose purpose is to understand events and abilities common described as psychic or paranormal. And according to Wikipedia, it's the first society con- to conduct organized scholarly research into human experiences that challenge contemporary scientific models. And it's been around since 1882. And I've heard about this before reading this book. I've heard mm-hmm. heard about this society. So um, SPR is pretty well known, and they're looking at this whole situation from a more scientific perspective, which is helpful because, you know, all this, you could still say like, okay, well, maybe Ken is, this is all part of a hoax. Maybe Ken is doing this, you know, mm-hmm. maybe he's making all this up. I mean, after all, he wrote the book, but I mean, we can say at this point without a doubt that this has been researched. All of this has been researched by scientists. Nice. This is about to go straight up cray cray. Okay. So strap in. I'm ready. So Ken receives another message from Lucas. My fellow Peter, you said your time is 1985. I thought you were also from 2109, like your friend who brought the box of lights. So now Ken is like, what? 2109? So now 2109 has entered the chat. So Ken leaves a message on the computer that just says, calling 2109 question mark. And they wait. And just like that, they eventually receive a response. So this one says, and I'm going to read some of these from 2109 just verbatim because Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I don't even know how to paraphrase these. This one says, Ken, Deb, Peter. Now recall Peter's the friend, the linguist that they're working with. Mm -hmm. We are sorry that we can only give you two choices. One, that you can either have your predicament in explained in such a non-rhyme way that you may have instant understanding because what should not be to happen or try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly, but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he is. So obviously this isn't Lucas. This is Mm -hmm. something else. So the next day they wake up and there are words scrawled all over the kitchen floor and they realize that it's Latin and it's been written in like some type of chalk. 
And they show it to Peter and they realize it's actually meant for him because the translation of it says, Peter, you ask too much. Furthermore, Lucas went to his death. He brought death upon himself, the God's will. And they can't figure out what this last word says. It's kind of like scribbled in a way that they can't read it. So while they're trying to figure this out, they notice that there's another message on the computer and it says eradicent. And this is Latin for essentially the gods will root you out. And it's the missing word from oh my God. the scrawlings on the floor. Oh, this gives me like goosebumps. I know. The reason that I mentioned this is because we can say definitively now that whatever is happening on the computer is directly related to the poltergeist activity because they're playing off each other, right? So these things are connected. So once again, I'm kind of skipping some things here, but they get these weird communications now that are primarily coming from 2109, not Lucas now. And the communications are like disjointed and somewhat robotic. They're a very different feel from the ye old English of Lucas. And I mean, to be honest, they really just want to speak to their friend Lucas because they got to know him over, the t over this time. And yeah. I mean, this new communication that they're getting is like super weird. But Lucas does manage to get through to them, not just not through the computer. You see, Debbie and Lucas seem to have like this strange connection for some reason. Now, remember, like they would get messages on the computer sometimes when Deb was home, just mm -hmm. not in the same room. So she gets this idea that maybe she'd leave some paper and charcoal next to the computer overnight, kind of like they did with the picture, yeah. thinking maybe he can do something with it. And it works. The next morning, they find symbols drawn on a piece of paper, seemingly by Lucas. And it says, ask Debbie about the dream and you will know my name. So... Another thing that's happening here is they're kind of getting an inkling that Lucas is a pseudonym, like that's not his real name. So Ken asks Debbie about her dream and she goes, you know what? Like immediately she has like goosebumps because she did have a weird dream and she's been having weird dreams lately where she'd go into the living room and all of a sudden she'd open the door and there would be a man sitting there and it'd be like she was transported into an older time and the man would react to her. He would like look at her. He tried to talk to her. And now Lucas is referring to these dreams. He's referring to the dream that she had. Bizarre. So to make a long story short, Lucas and Debbie are now having connections through dreams and she's able to like visit him and then he's able to confirm that he saw her through these communications in the charcoal. So I'm just going to quick summarize where we're at right now. Hmm. We have one communications from the 1500s through a computer in the 1980s that isn't hooked up to the internet. Two communications through the same computer with something claiming to be from 2109. Three poltergeist activity. Four, items being left by the computer that are being confirmed through text on the computer and then being manipulated. And number five, messages being left with items left by the computer that are referring to dreams that Debbie didn't tell anyone about. She didn't tell anyone about those dreams. So it's just full-on chaotic yes. insanity right yes. now. So still following? I'm, I'm following. Okay. So now we come to find out Lucas's real name. And it doesn't really matter how just... They come to find out his real name is Thomas Harridan. And they're able to get this through like communications with him that were left in the charcoal. Okay. Mm -hmm. So 
Lucas gives this information and they realize once they have this Thomas Harridan, they realize that this has to be their guy. So not only was this name given to them, but they also had an inkling that this person in history, Thomas Harridan, might have actually fit the bill for Lucas. And right away, it's like a missing puzzle piece just went and fit. Because this Thomas guy was in the right places at the right times. He went to the right schools. It's starting to look like Lucas was a real historical figure. Hmm. He just was not using his real name for whatever reason. I mean, if someone started communicating with me randomly like that, I don't think I would be like, oh, hey, this is my name. Like, I don't even use my real name on this podcast, yeah. guys. <laughs> so, I mean, I get it. I get it. The minute that they figure this out, they get a message from 2109. It's like the bat signal went out. And they say, we have reason to believe you have Lucas Weinman's true name. If this is correct, you must say so, so that we may rectify the problem immediately before it is accepted. You may now continue to write Lucas to establish your responsibility to our experiments and towards a better understanding of time and its forces. At present, you have two Lucases running around your house. If at any time the two are to meet, we cannot explain the the devastation that will erupt within the time continuum. We must stop communication with Lucas one, but we cannot interfere with the other. While we decide what can be done to rectify the problem, you must help be giving us every word uttered by Thomas Haradine from the second you received his true name. You must also state how much information you have on this man. Everything, word for word. Avoid any other communication you may have with him. Desperation be quick, 2109. Hmm. So now it's almost like we have a back to the future situation where it's like, like, yeah, it's like they can't run into each other or it's going to like totally screw things up. So they receive another message. Ask the man, David, what he thinks of conjectural tachyons and what are his theories of causality? What answer does he have for its paradox? Cheers, 2109. David, they come to find out, is David Welch. He works at SPRI, which again is that Mm -hmm. psychical research place. And they reach out to him and he's like, I can't believe that you're calling me. I literally just gave a lecture on tachyons this morning. So what are tachyons? Do you know? I don't know. (laughs) Tachyons are a hypothetical particle that move faster than light. Research has been done on them and it's hypothesized that they could be harnessed And if they're harnessed, they could build a communication device that could send particles faster than the speed of light. So what's interesting is right after this, 2109 makes fun of Ken for calling David on a telephone. And he says something like, you call these advanced if you only knew what was to come. So I bring this up because now they've mentioned something that Ken wouldn't even know about. Mm -hmm. And they're making fun of phones. So, like, maybe these tachyons are, like, a clue about how all this works. If they know all this stuff is happening, why do they need them to give them the information? I know. I know. It's That's interesting. It's almost like they're trying to, like, I don't know, like, provoke him or something. I don't don't know. So, 
2109 says that they are not entirely in command of this experiment, which is what they're calling it now. They can say that it will cease no later than November. So this isn't now. We know that it's an experiment. It's going to mm -hmm. wrap up at some time in November. And at this point, SPRI writes out questions to 2109. So I'm just going to read the answers, not the questions. So this is what SPRI has asked the intelligence that's okay. speaking as 2109. Number one, if a person is to physically travel in time, then they must take the living place of a person at some, at the point of destination and vice versa. Imagine a set of scales balanced perfectly with pebbles. To remove a pebble from one dish to the other and keep the perfect balance, you must instantaneously remove a pebble from the other and replace them in reverse order. You may move a couple pebbles already in the dish, but the vital balance is still kept if someone is brought in from another dimension. And then again, the same procedure applies. Make sense? Okay. Following. Number two, matter will not, as we know, ever travel in time. This is not a contradiction to the above info. Number three, we are not in control of this experiment, which they already mentioned. Number four, Thomas is a person living in the 16th century, but unknown to him, he's not what he seems to be, which I think is interesting. Hmm. Ken, is there a possibility that you might persuade Thomas to call up this chap one tonight as it is imperative that we speak to him immediately? 2109. Then they start getting weirder messages. So these start saying 213 nine seven eight eight j irrevocable state repon for your pretext state what prerequisite do you intend state logical explanation for your intrusive behavior upon 1983 this is not your concern request com dot link six two so it almost seems like they're receiving like code or something. Mm -hmm. And it also seems like they're receiving communications that are, are not really intended for them. It's almost like there's two entities or two types of intelligences that are arguing with each other because they're saying like, why are you interfering with 1983? And these go back and forth and it's weird, but sometimes it's like computer speak and other times it's more like poetic. Mm -hmm. Other times it seems more like Ken is speaking, like when he's talking, like he's speaking to two people from the future. So this brings us to what I find to be the most interesting exchange. So SPR asks 2109 when the next supernova will be and where its location in space will be. So you see, they're trying to like challenge the intelligence and see what type of information they come back with. So the response is observe bottom right hand region of the Southern hemisphere near to the equator, seventh celestial body in the Delphinius constellation soon could be a quasar. So on face value, this is in the Northern hemisphere. So it's wrong. But then they realize it's actually correct if you're viewing it from outside of our galaxy. Jeez. So now, are we talking to something offside? Are we talking to something outside of our planet? Mm -hmm. So at this point, 2109 asked Ken to call a phone number 
So he does. And he gets this guy called Gary Rowe, who's a ufologist. Mm. And Gary is not weirded out by this phone call. He's not like, hey, dude, why are you calling me? He says that he understands why he's being contacted, but he won't explain why, which drives me freaking nuts. Like, come on, dude. So 2109 explains that they should print stuff. I'm sorry. That just sounds so snobbish. I know why you're calling, but I'm not going to tell you. I know. Exactly. (laughs) Come on, dude. Come on, Gary. So 2109 explains that they should print stuff off and not read it and then leave it in a sealed envelope and give it to Gary. And they oblige. Hmm. I I can't say that I would have been as a, I, I would have been reading all that crap. But I, I guess I probably also kind of would have been afraid of 2109. So maybe yeah. I wouldn't have. I mean, this is all a little creepy. They do this. And Gary returns items in envelopes. And all they do is they place it next to the computer and they disappear overnight. Sometimes there's actual items in the envelope. Like we can feel that there's something in there. Other times there's just weird like Egyptian symbols written on the envelopes. But they never look inside because that's what they either he was in on it. Or this, what said happened in this book, he agrees that it happened. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not saying anything's true or not, but I'm saying at least he agrees that this happened. So now we have the Center for Psychical Research, this Gary Rowe dude, you know, they're all agreeing that this happened. So as Mm -hmm. crazy as this sounds, It's not just this Ken dude that's coming up with this stuff. There's other players who are a part of this who are like, yep, this happened. We get to November. And remember, this is the deadline for communication. They said that it would cease no later than November. And we finally hear about the night that Lucas receives the box of lights. And I mean, we knew that it was from that one dude, but we didn't really get the details. So they start talking. So here it goes. This is how he got the box of lights. So one night, Lucas was in his living room and he saw a strange green light near the wall by the chimney. Oddly enough, this is where a lot of the poltergeist activity had been centered around. It got brighter and brighter and from the light stepped what he thought was surely the devil. He was paralyzed by the strange messenger. So we hear about that a lot. Mm -hmm. The humanoid figure said not to fear, but to keep his faith strong, and he gave him this machine with lights. Lucas didn't know what it was at first or what to do with it, but the next day his maid Catherine was singing, and he noticed her words were showing up on the screen. So Lucas wasn't typing. He would speak. And that explains why the punctuation was always so modern, Mm. whereas the speech was not. So Lucas vowed that he would not die without writing his book, and 2109 confirmed that he did indeed write his book. So the last communication that Ken received was from 2109, and it goes like this. It's a little long, but I'm going to read the whole thing. True are the nightmares of those that fear. What you fear will be your reality if you let it. Believe in yourselves. Safe are the bodies of the silent word. As long as your kind cannot penetrate our world, we are safe. 
Turn pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow, but the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Knowledge will be your progress, but your kind are coming close to getting their fingers burnt. Indirectly, you may prevent this. Get out your bricks. Get ready to build. Pussycat, pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. The cat went to visit the queen, but instead frightened a little mouse under the chair. Ultimately, London will be a significant place. Stick to your aims. It doesn't matter how hard they seem to get. Do not be distracted by that tiny mouse that has a deceiving charm. Faith must not be lost. You all rely on each other's faith. There is a person to come. They will be the help you need. You will know them when they come. Thomas did eventually write his book and died soon after, shortly after he placed it in a secure place. It shouldn't take too many years to find it, though he wrote it in Latin with the help of a friend that he met in Oxford. The inscription reads, Me writes this in hopes that my fellows will one day find this book and that other lands may not be so distant. We will finish now. You have a lot of work to do. There is no need to write back as we will have gone. Thank you for your cooperation, 2109. So that's it. That last communication started off much like the first communication. Yeah. And so far, no book has been found, even though they've been looking. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's where we leave it. Dang. So... I guess given all three of these stories, the question is, what the hell is happening? Yeah. And the reason why I wanted to put all of these stories together, you know, like I wanted to put your stuff, I wanted to put the Hungry Spirits story and then this story all together is because I feel like it's a multifaceted view on this whole communing with spirits thing. Mm-hmm that I just find super fascinating. You know, what are we speaking with when we think that we're speaking with something from beyond? Yeah. Are we speaking with ghosts? Are we speaking with entities? Are we speaking with aliens? Because, dude, it seemed like they were speaking with aliens in that last one. But then the question is, what is an alien? You I know? know, you've made me hearing your views on this and doing all these episodes has made me rethink aliens completely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to think that there's maybe like a hierarchy of beings out there. Maybe there are, and I believe, I truly believe that there are people who have passed who are still able to contact us. Mm -hmm. I not only do I want to believe that, I mean, I want to believe that, but I also, I feel that it's true. I feel like there's things that have happened that make me feel that that's accurate. Right. But then there's some of these other stories that make me think that there's other things that mess with us that mm -hmm. maybe aren't human. And I guess it's not such a stretch to think that, you know, when you go and you look at the Bible and stuff like that, and you've got, you know, the devil and you've got, you know, all these other things that are the devil's out to get you and stuff like that. Right. And I mean, we have like, 
we talked about all these scam artists. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we have human scam artists. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't there be entity scam artists as well exactly. trying to just mess with us? Exactly. Well, and what's interesting is when you when you talk about people that have done psychedelic trips, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be like ayahuasca or peyote or, you know, even different types of like psychedelic mushrooms and things like that they speak about seeing different entities sometimes along their journeys not everybody but some people despite the different types of trips that they might take it seems like there's consistent interactions with these you know guardian keepers that maybe keep them from these higher level entities whatever that may be yeah and so sometimes i wonder if there's again like i said like a hierarchy there's the whatever is greater than us that which Mm -hmm. is greater than us you know god whatever you are going to call that you know Mm -hmm. based off your belief structure to me it's god you know but Mm -hmm whatever that is to the person. But then there's things that are maybe somewhere in between. People that are no longer on earth anymore that Mm -hmm. are able to influence us in some way, but maybe things that never were human at all. Things that who knows what they were, Mm -hmm. you know, but they influence us in some ways. And, you know, I, I know in, I guess, from a more religious perspective, you could maybe call it a demon or something mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, maybe it's just a different type of entity. I mean, there could be demons and guardian angels exactly. and influencing us in different exactly. ways. Exactly. I think it all just depends on the, like the construct that you're viewing the phenomenon through, the lens that you're looking at it through. Mm-hmm. Are you looking at it from a religious perspective? Are you looking at it from a you know purely spiritual perspective are you looking at it from a purely i i don't want to say atheist perspective because i feel like that's a really harsh word yeah i guess materialistic perspective Mm -hmm. you know a nuts and bolts perspective where maybe they're aliens or something like that you know yeah i i don't know i just find it really fascinating i think that there's so much more to it but i think that it's all connected and then you link it back to like the UAPs and, you know, stuff like that. It is that part of all of this, mm-hmm. you know? And I just, I just always think that it's interdimensional. I know. I feel like it's interdimensional. Why wasn't, the, I feel like the story, there should be a movie about this story. I know. Like I'm shocked that there's not. I know. So fun, fun fact here. So if you follow me personally on social media, um, which I don't think I've ever mentioned it, my which I welcome you all to do so. Um, it's at Bees Eclectic. And I posted a picture of the cover of this book, which is called The Vertical Plane by Ken Webster. And I didn't have the title. And I said, bonus points for anyone who knows what this book is. And I found out that my husband's cousin is reading this book. And she's like, oh my gosh, I'm reading that book right now, which is just crazy to me because this book is, it's not very well known. And prior to, I think this is the second edition, which is, was in 2021. Prior to 2021, it was very hard to find this book. You could pay like $500 for a copy of it. 
because it wasn't in print anymore and it was just very expensive to find. So I feel very lucky that I'm even <laughs> able to get a copy. So anyway, I I don't know. It's just I someday maybe we'll know. Mm -hmm. But this episode has left me with many thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear what yeah. everyone else is thinking. Yes. I really want to hear what all of you out there think about these books, about what you think is behind all of this. I also want to hear about your stories. If you guys have had any interesting stories like that, if you've ever felt like you were getting a message from someone or something from beyond, let us know. So follow us on at Mysteriously Eclectic Podcast on Instagram and at Mysteriously Eclectic Pod on TikTok. And we want to hear your stories. And again, if you don't subscribe to our bonus season, um, we welcome you to do that. We have a lot of great content on there that's just a little bit different from what we cover here. And we will be back next week with another great episode. Thanks for listening. So we will link to all of the books that we covered in both episode one and episode two of this series. The first was The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, a riveting investigation into channeling in spirit guides by Joe Fisher. And the second was The Vertical Plane by Ken Webster. I highly suggest that you check both of those out. I will link to both of them in the show notes and you can pick them right up off Amazon through that link. Mm -hmm.